Thanks for being here today. It's, it is really good. We're really thankful to be at this church. It has been five really wonderful years and we're, we just love this place. Yesterday was, I don't know, three or four in the afternoon and we heard this just this faintest tap, tap, tap on our front door. Lindsay and I kind of looked at each other, somebody here? And we go to the door and it's this little girl who's from Highland. She's three and a half or four years old. She's got this little sunflower dress on and pigtails, and she's got cookies in one hand and a card in the other hand. And she comes in, she says, is Noble here? And I said, absolutely. Noble was naked at that moment. So <laughs> I don't know when that's inappropriate. Um, so I had to put some underwear and a t-shirt on him and, and mark her back to his room. And she hands him the cookies and he says, thank you. And then she has this note and she hands it to him and he says, is this note for me? I said, sure is, buddy. And he said, Daddy, will you read it? And it was the sweetest little note about how we love one another in Christ. And, uh, you know, just one of those moments where I'm reminded of how good this church is to Lindsay and I. And I just wanted you to hear that story in here that we really are thankful for all the ways that you support us. And um, I'm going to work on getting that money tree out there. So... We're in 1 Samuel 25 today. If you want to go there, um, I'd appreciate it if you would. Let me, let me make one quick announcement, which um, I, I just want to say before I, before I jump in, that many of you know Brenda Lindsay, who sat down here, right here in the front for years and years. Well, she passed away this week. She's going to have a memorial service here at Highland on Saturday, just a week from today or a week from yesterday at 1130. So that's this coming Saturday. I want to make sure you knew about that. First Samuel 25 is where we're going to be. So if I, if I think about it for a minute, I, I can still taste the blood in my mouth. You know, that metallic, bitter taste of blood. I... I can feel my bottom lip just throbbing with my heartbeat. And I can remember running my tongue along each of my front teeth to see if they were wiggling. It was, I was 12 years old. We were out behind the church building. It was our annual fall festival. And me and my buddy were throwing a baseball around in the back of the church building. And then around the corner comes this other boy who's about our age. And I, I don't remember exactly what he said to me, but it was something about my mama. And I said something back to him that I'm sure was very chivalrous and not at all sarcastic. And he, he punched me in the mouth. And it was a sucker punch, totally didn't see it coming. And I just remember my lip just spilling blood, right? I remember that. And I'd like to say that at that moment, I um, turned the other cheek. Right? Oh, you got me right here? Let's try right there. But I didn't. And I, I'd like to say I thought about Jesus, but I didn't think about Jesus or anything Jesus ever said at that moment. <laughs> Even though I was at church, I wanted blood and not mine. I'll never forget though, my best friend grabbed me up under the arms at that moment and he started whispering into my ear, don't, don't Eric, don't. And I didn't, I didn't. 1 Samuel 25 is such an odd story. You heard it read just a minute ago. It's got David and he's out in the desert with 600 guys just roaming around in the desert. And it's got Nabal who's a fool. In fact, that's what his name means. He's mean and surly, the text says. 
And then it's got Abigail, this beautiful woman who stops David from killing Nabal. But it's really hard to figure out what's going on in the story, especially at the beginning of the story. Let me kind of set the stage. David has been anointed to be king of Israel by Samuel, but the only problem is that Samuel's dead and David is still not king. Saul is king. And so David's out in the desert running around in fear for his life from Saul not being promoted to the position that's already been promised him. Now, this would be a bit like um, your boss at work promising you a promotion and then just never mentioning it again. You keep showing up to work every day thinking, this is the day, honey, and it just never happens, right? And then, in fact, your boss demotes you. First, he lose your office and he transfers you to some cubicle and then he, he transfers you out of state to some God-forsaken place like Texas or something, right? <laughs> Away from all your family and friends and your pay is decreased and not only that, but then your boss gets so fed up with you that he wants to kill you and you show up every day afraid like I am of some of our elders. <laughs> hmm? Just kidding. That's kind of what's going on here, right? Things are not going like God has promised. But just a chapter earlier, just a chapter earlier though, David still has this really beautiful moment of mercy where he trusts in God's timing. He's in this deep back in this cave in the dark and Saul walks in. He's got this chance to kill the king and become king himself. He approaches Saul, but instead of killing him, you remember he just cuts off a corner of his robe and Saul walks out and he says he doesn't do it because Saul is still the anointed one <clears throat> and the anointed one of the Lord, excuse me. And then you can just imagine David walking out of that cave after Saul's left and he holds that garment, that hem of the robe up and he says, God, look what I did. You know, surely you're gonna promote me now. Only God doesn't. And so David and 600 men and all their families are still out in this desert, depressed, angry, frustrated. They're hot, they're hungry. And it's there in this desert, disappointed with God, that they come across Nabal and all of his sheep. And they view these sheep as an opportunity. They decide they are gonna protect Nabal's sheep. Only problem is that Nabal did not ask for their protection which is little matter in David's mind, they decide they're gonna protect him anyways. And so the question that you should be asking as smart people is, who are they protecting the sheep from? Jesus tells a story that takes place not far from here in the same desert. It's about this guy that's traveling along this road and robbers, bandits overtake him and they beat him and they rob him and they leave him for dead. And then who comes along to help him? A good Samaritan does. So the surprise in that story is not that a man might get beaten and robbed out in this desert, right? The surprise is the good Samaritan. Everybody knows out in the desert, there are a lot of bad people. And maybe that's who David's protecting these sheep from, all these bad folks who rob people and stuff like that. But well, when David sends his men to ask Nabal to 
pay him for protecting the sheep that Nabal did not ask him to protect. It feels a little bit like the school bully tapping on your shoulder when you're in the lunch line. And he says, hey, I've been protecting you. You say, protecting me from who? And he says, well, me, right? Uh, He says, I could have beaten you up back there and taken your lunch money. And you say, thanks, And he says, of course, there's a fee for my services. Give me your lunch money. It's kind of how this story feels to me. So it's really no surprise that Nabal says, no. In fact, this is what he says, even though he looks at David and his 600 warriors, he says this, well, who is this David guy? Who's this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Yeah, Nabal is a fool. That's what his name means, and that's what he is. Problem is, David isn't much better right now. He's mad at God, and now he's been insulted by this little guy, Nabal. And so he's ticked, and he's out for blood. He takes 400 of his men, they put on their swords, and they ride off to kill Nabal and every man in his household. So when we first meet David in 1 Samuel 16, he's described as beautiful. That's the word used for David. And then in 1 Samuel 24, like I just talked about, he does have this really beautiful moment of mercy when he spares Saul's life and he didn't have to. But this David in 1 Samuel 25 is not pretty. He's all ugly here. One scholar said he's full of himself and he's empty of God, which fortunately none of us have ever been, right? And then you've got Abigail, this beautiful, beautiful woman. Some of the guys who were napping, I just saw their eyes open up. (laughs) She is, and in fact, she's beautiful in every way that that David is not right now. Okay, she's wise and she's calm and she's reasoned. She's Nabal's wife, but she knows Nabal's a fool. And when she hears that he's done something else foolish, she doesn't waste any time. She saddles up her donkeys and they ride out to meet David and his war party. And she brings all of these gifts along with her. And when she comes to David, she falls down in front of him and she says, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone's pursuing you to take your life, Saul, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling which is a reference to David and Goliath. Remember that, we'll come back to that. And when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. I don't, I don't think that Abigail ever read this guy named Frederick Nietzsche, although you probably had to read him back in school. 
I think he might have read about Abigail. He's got this great line that pretty much exactly summarizes what she's standing there saying to David. Nietzsche said that whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster himself. She's saying vengeance isn't your job, David. Vengeance is the Lord's. You fight the Lord's battles. Don't you remember Goliath? I mean, that's who you are, not something petty like this. You don't want this on your conscience. This is going to keep you from becoming the king the people want. If you have this revenge, this bloodshed hanging over you, she says, David, don't do this. One fool is enough for this story. You know, she grabs him and says, don't. And he doesn't. He doesn't. One of my favorite TV shows, there's a woman, she's the boss of this company and she stops a man who works for her from doing this really terrible thing and she comes to him and she has this great line. She says, Lewis, that's what I like about you. You may not be self-aware, but if someone holds up a mirror, you're not afraid to look. And I think if you're having trouble picturing this scene with Abigail, what you might imagine is David and this war party coming down into this valley and Abigail standing there. And as David approaches, she just holds up this mirror. And David sees himself in the mirror that she's holding, sees his ugly, vengeful, wrathful self. And the sight of that, the horror of what he sees, stops him. In this story, Abigail, she's not rescuing Nabal. He, he dies in a few verses. God strikes him dead. That's not her, her point. Her point is to rescue David and to rescue him from himself, not someone else, from himself. Uh, you've, you've probably heard about this show called 13 Reasons Why. Anybody heard of that show? The show's about this young girl who takes her own life and then leaves behind cassette tapes that explain her 13 reasons why she did it. And the show is really popular with young people right now. And let me, let me just pause there and say, if suicide is something that you've considered or are, well, I'd just really like to grab you and say, don't. Not only because you're the beloved child of God, but because when I read this story, I see, you know, you're not, you're not unlike David here. He's out in this desert. All the promises God has made aren't happening for him. And he feels like he's gonna be out here forever. And so he's got this despair and it kind of looks like he wants to take it out on somebody else. But what Abigail's reminding him is that this is suicide, David. You're going to ruin your chances of ever being the person that God wants you to be. So don't do this. She says, don't you remember Goliath, David? Don't you remember that stone that left your sling? You think that's because you were such a good marksman, David? That was God. And if God could beat this giant that no one else could beat, he can get you out of this desert. Don't do something foolish she says 
With that show, 13 Reasons Why, it is really popular. And recently in Oxford, Michigan, heard a story about at a school, a high school, where two students had recently taken their life. And so the principal was really beside herself and didn't know what to do. So she started this program called 13 Reasons Why Not. And on the PA, every morning during the, sun, during the morning announcements, 13 students told the story of why they decided their life was worth living. And one of those students who told the story over the PA to a couple thousand other students was a girl named Kayla. And she talks about being on the volleyball team as a freshman and getting bullied. And she says that things were said to me that no one deserves to hear. I always, I always thought to myself, why me? What could I have done for someone to possibly hate me so much? One day at practice, I heard the worst thing someone could ever hear. Why don't you just go kill yourself? And being the vulnerable 14-year-old that I was, I thought to myself, well, would anything really change if I wasn't here? But then she talks about her friend Alexa, who just happened to be around at the time, happened to listen to Kayla, talk with her. But Kayla says, you may not realize, Alexa, how big of an impact your words had on me. And for that, I could simply never repay you. So thank you, Alexa for being the bright light in my dark time. You're one of my 13 reasons, why not? And I think that's exactly what David would say about Abigail, this beautiful woman. You know, the details in the story are a little bit different, but basically it's about somebody saving someone else from themselves. And when Abigail does save David, he thanks her for it, but ultimately look who he thanks. This is what he says. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Abigail saves David from himself and he thanks God for sending Abigail. And I think some people think that this is the moment at which David writes Psalm 14, which you might read this afternoon. Psalm 14 is about the fool. A lot of people think he's writing it about Nabal, but, but listen to it and see if you think maybe, well, maybe he's talking about himself. He says, fools say in their hearts, there's no God. They're corrupt and their deeds are vile, right? They never call on the Lord, which is exactly what David was about to just do. Rush into something that would have led to his destruction without consulting the Lord, except that Abigail saves him from himself. She intercedes, she stands in the middle and stops him. So let me, let me end with this thought. Those, those who don't think that the gospel is present in the Old Testament, and there are a lot of those people who think, you know, the gospel's about Jesus Christ, that's kind of a New Testament thing. Well, those who think that haven't read about Abigail. Because we're all like David, aren't we? You know, we all always have and always will have the need for somebody to save us from ourselves. Because inside of us is that same tendency for self-destruction. 
that tendency to trust God in one moment, to be willing to spare Saul's life because you are so confident in the promises of the Lord. And then you rub shoulders with some fool who makes you so mad you want blood, right? We're angry, we're impatient, we're frustrated, we're hungry. We are, in biblical terms, sinful. If you don't believe me, just leave here and drive on 240, right? Right? Okay, the problem isn't Memphis drivers any more than the problem is this rich old man who doesn't want to share his sheep. Right? I mean, who really names their kid fool like these parents did? I mean, he represents something to us. He's that person, that thing we run into all the time who reminds us, ooh, what's inside of me is still pretty ugly. Right, that I still have this sin that creeps in and begins to call the shots in my life. And mercy and grace fly out the window. Sin is that great ugliness that just festers inside of David. It festers inside of you and me. And that is why we desperately need to be saved from ourselves. Right, the desire for God and the desire for the loving action of his son comes from seeing the ugliness inside yourself. Listen to how Paul says that. This is in Titus 3. I mean, he could be describing an Abigail story, but I think he's describing ours. Look what he says. He says, at one time, we too were foolish. There's that word. We were disobedient. We were deceived and slaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hated one another. David, right? But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appears, just like Abigail appearing in this valley, the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. If you have not been washed in this rebirth and renewal, you are missing out. And for those of you who have been washed, who've taken on the Lord and baptism, you do need this reminder from time to time that some of that ugliness tries to creep back in. But like Paul's saying here, we have this great gift of the Holy Spirit who stands within us, right? And holds up this mirror and reminds us, oh, I need Jesus. Reminds us that were it not for him, that what I saw in that mirror would be so ugly and terrible, I couldn't stand it. But instead, I look and see Christ. That the ugliness inside me is washed away in the waters of baptism in the love of Christ. You know, um, you probably wanna know what happened to that boy who hit me. Well, I'd like to say uh, that we became best friends. We didn't. We did go to school together. We ended up at college together, even though I moved away later. And we ended up on the same hall at Abilene Christian. That's the thing about Church of Christ. You just can't get away from these people. And so you don't, you don't want to make enemies here. And uh, 
we ended up on the same hallway and we, you know, we were friendly with each other. We, you know, sometimes when I walk by, I'd, I'd kind of go like this and say, just checking, you know, I, I thought, thought it might be a little loose and, uh, but we, we got along fine. You know, he had had a hard life. Um, a couple of years before he hit me, his father had committed suicide. His single mom really struggled to get by. He had an older brother and older sister who both had some, you know, issues and he just really had a hard life. But he's really turned into a fine man. He's got a family. He's doing a great job. And, you know, I'm not so naive to think that if I had punched him, I would have knocked him out. Yeah, I think every man thinks in his mind, he's like Muhammad Ali, right? Like, don't mess with me. You know, I don't know that I would have hurt him. I do wonder, though, what damage I might have done to his soul, right, if his blood had been on my hands. And really this story about Abigail makes me wonder, had it not been for my friend, what damage would I have done to my soul if his blood had been on my hands? And I'm not gonna call up my friend this afternoon and tell him, man, you're so beautiful. He'd get the willies and he'd stop answering my calls probably. (laughs) But what he did was, it really was a beautiful thing. And Abigail and my buddy, they remind me, and I hope they remind you of that one who really saves us from ourselves. Jesus Christ, who stands there with this mirror, we see our foolishness and ugliness, but then Jesus lets that foolishness take him, right? He lets our ugliness nail him to the cross so that it doesn't take us, so that we don't destroy ourselves. And so that when we do look in that mirror now, what we see is not so terrible and not so ugly. Like Paul says, we are no longer slaves to sin. We look and what we see is truly beautiful because it is Jesus Christ looking back at us. And when you see that, when you see him, you'll thank the one who's really deserving of that our Lord and Savior, our Father. And I hope you do that today. Will you stand with me as as we sing and let's worship our loving God together. We are moment, you are forever, Lord of the ages.